Hark! It's an 87th Precinct podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's seminal series of police procedural novels, which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series, and today we are looking at book number 53, The Frumious Bandersnatch. To discuss this strangely named tome, I'm joined, uh, as ever, by my associates, Mr. Morgan Brown. Hello there. Uh, Mr. Stephen Royston. Hello. And I've made no more notes for my introduction because I forgot to write it literally <laughs> until I copied and pasted the bits across just before we started. But if you want to know what we've been up to, uh, we've been discussing Barclay James Harvest and the acts <laughs> depicted on the record sleeve of Deep Purple in Rock. <laughs> so if you want to know... The sort of chat we get up to. Fair, fairly standard, isn't it, really? Yeah. When we're off the McBain clock. <laughs> we're going to create a new series of podcasts about that exact topic. There's probably Just, a lot of mileage in it. Every episode is a, a different album from the, the Harvest label, Inner yeah. Sleeve, circa 1969. Yeah. You could probably... Yeah. Probably already is one, isn't it? Yeah. There's been more obscure concepts for things. I mean, <laughs> here we are. Any road, we're here we are at book number 53, The Frumious Bandersnatch, which is, um, well, I had to try and figure out a date for this because like the last book we did, a lot of sources list it as one year, but actually I think it comes out in not 2003, but 2004. I had to trawl around looking for copyright notices and see what I could see because it's, uh, I think it's listed as copyright 2004 in our copies that we've got here. Uh, so yeah. it is, yeah. But the copyright registration, when you look that up in America, is 2003. Google Books lists it as something different. Copyright catalogue lists it as something different. But it's 2004. However, I think it's published 2nd of January 2004, so almost exactly a year on from Fat Ollie's book. Mm-hmm. So there we are, straight into some detailed date chat. Straight away <laughs> there. But I'm going to get us up to speed through 2003. Okay, so I'm going to, I'm going to rather than abandon that year because we looked at the year before again when we looked at Fat Ollie's book. I'll just catch us up with some of the events of 2003 before we get stuck into the Frumious Bandersnatch. More relevant for writing the book, I would think. Yes, I think so. Yeah. So, well, if we recall that uh, the Prime Minister at the time was Mr. Tony Blair, Uh and the President was George W. Bush. And I've only made a few little notes, as I've got one I'd probably end up talking about quite a lot, because it was very interesting. We've got a little uh, a little transport one for you, Steve. All right. I've got okay. a question for you here, right? Uh, right, okay. So, in January of 2003, yeah. the electrification of the Trans-Siberian Railway was completed. Blimey. But in what year did the process start? So, it completed in 03. I'm going to say it started in about... Mm, about 1955. I bet it took them forever. Well. It, Earlier. It began in 1929. Oh, right, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. That's a sort of bizarre. That's incredible, isn't it? I suppose you can probably only work a small bit of the year up there. A lot of wires. Yeah, a lot of wires. Long distance. So, There's a model um, railway, you need a giant transformer, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, there's an event in February I'm going to come back to. March the 20th, the American invasion of Iraq begins. 
Oh, yeah. Because we're in a post 9 11 world, of course. The war on terror, that was, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Oh, business. In June, on June the 22nd, the largest hailstone ever recorded falls in Aurora, Nebraska. How big was it? The size of a Volkswagen Beetle. It was seven inches in diameter. Oh, right. Perhaps. <laughs> well, a <laughs> toy Volkswagen Beetle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's still, you know, you'd know about that if it landed on you, wouldn't you? <laughs> well, possibly not. <laughs> well, you'd know. It would be the last thing you, you experienced. Yeah. You would if you were inside a Volkswagen Beetle. Uh, that's for sure. Very true, yeah. Yeah. August the 1st, 2003, saw the launch of MySpace. Oh, boy. Those are the days. Oh, no, it's weird, isn't it? It's... I can't remember when I joined MySpace. I think I felt like I was a bit of a latecomer to some well, of those. They still exist. I mean, is in it some form, a, I think. Yeah, they, 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 they tried to turn it into a, just a purely music website, I think, but I don't think it exists in yeah anything like the form it used to no. have. In the old days when you'd have your top... Ten friends or whatever. Yeah, and your profile song. Oof. Yeah, that would be like, I've got an MP3 plays when people come on my page for no reason. Top ten friends. So you were, yeah, you could relegate a, somebody out of your I know, top ten. Like, you had like a little panel, didn't mean. you? You could have like... Yeah, you could. I mean, I, I think after a while you could change it so it was more, couldn't you? But yeah. yeah. Mean, isn't it? You always tell if someone was, was um, a, a bit desperate if they had Tom from MySpace and their top... Yeah, whatever it was. With his little looking at the camera yeah. sort of <laughs> image. But yeah, MySpace that started all this rubbish that we're dealing with now. Talking of which, I uh, have had my most bizarre week on Twitter ever this week because mm. I made I made a meme I like saw. the kids do. A Doctor Who meme. And oh. clearly it got the attention of someone on Twitter, including Big Finish Productions who make the audio plays for Doctor Who, the official audio plays, retweeted it. And my notifications for the last two days have just been going ping, ping, Amazing. ping. Is that the one with the master ping. in it? Yes, yes with uh, Roger, Roger Delgado as the master. Which started as a joke, because I was sending Lorraine pictures of the master for comedy purposes. And then I suddenly thought, oh, I saw three pictures and thought, that'd work like a meme thing. And clearly... I am now the meme king. Wow. Yeah, you so. Have you sold it for yeah, mega, make mega it, books? Make it an NFT. <laughs> yeah. I would I never know what that is. No, no one really knows. Uh, no. Except it's stupid and don't do it. Yes. Um, yeah, NFTs go away. But anyway, that's all the launch of MySpace made me think of that. Uh, more transport news. Oh, um, right. October the 24th, we see the last commercial flight of Concorde. Ooh. Which is one of those things for people of our age, men in their early 40s particularly, that's like Concorde was such a... I mean, it, was, it wasn't new when we were born, but it was still a very exciting and, you know, all the books about planes and things you'd get and, and yeah. kids' encyclopedias. Yeah. Concorde was still like, wow, that's a, look at the shape of that. Well, and it was very fast, wasn't it? It was very fast, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think the last few years, they, they won't blow up in yeah, Paris. Yeah, yeah that's right. It was starting to fall to pieces by then a bit, I think, were they? Yeah. Um, I remember watching the news when they were actually finally, uh, the last one was mothballed. And there was a little kid on this. I don't know if, whether that was like 2003 or this was a little later when they were just finally being literally put to bed. And just there was a little kid on the news watching this last Concorde roll down this runway away to wherever it was going. And he was just turned to the camera and it's in his eyes and he was going, I just love planes. <laughs> and I often think of that little boy. He was Aww. so moved. 
Uh, December the 12th, Mick Jagger is knighted. Mm. I mention that because he's in the book, or his name is is mentioned in this book. But I want to go back to, before we get onto the Frumious Bandersnatch, February the 15th and 16th, we have the Antwerp Diamond Heist. <sighs> the largest diamond heist of all time. And I'm literally, I'm going to go and visit the page now on Wikipedia just to give you some highlights from mm. it. Highlights from the heist? Heist lights. Heist <laughs> So, anyway, so these thieves steal diamonds, gold, silver, and other sorts of jewellery up to a value of about $100 million. Cheeky. In the diamond district of Antwerp. And it's, you read through it, and it is, it's, it is like a, this should be a film. And I don't think it's been made into a film, but it's a proper one where someone hired a, a flat near the place that they were going to rob. Yeah. And they did all the observation stuff. So this this place they robbed was one of the most high tech places, and they had to yeah. invent a load of means of of robbing it. Amazing. I, I'd like to imagine there was a, a long pro- process of uh, assembling a mismatched crew of um, interesting characters, including, well, including a liability. <laughs> Someone who's obviously responsible for well, their let appreh- me, apprehension. Let me outline this for you <laughs> and see how right you are. It's normally the inside man or woman. Yeah. So uh, the group conducted detailed surveillance using camera pens to take picture of the center. Wow. Um, and the main guy sort of visited frequently under the guise of a diamond merchant, so he was sort of building up trust in the place. They managed to hide a small camera above the vault door. Um, they apparently practiced with a full-scale replica of the vault. Bloody hell. So that's insane. Cool. You think if you'd got the budget to make a full-scale replica of a vault, you probably wouldn't need to steal <laughs> yeah. all of this money in the first place, but... Or well, they made a slightly smaller one and then used children to play with <laughs> <laughs> To train the children. Uh, the day before the robbery, the guy uh, visited the vault and sprayed women's hairspray on the thermal motion sensors, just changing what they could detect. Bloody hell. You know, police scanners... Sounds you know, doable though, doesn't it? Does, <laughs> yeah. it? Should we go and heist some diamonds? And then you, I'm read, <laughs> you're reading through this, you're reading through this, and it talks about all the specifics of this magnetic lock on the vault door. Then it says, The King of Keys had used video footage to successfully make a duplicate of the almost impossible, impossible to duplicate foot long vault key. And how, how did how, so the King that, of Keys? The King of Keys. So say that again. How would how would he copied the key? Off a video. He's seen it on a video. He'd watched a video and made a duplicate via looking at the video. Bloody hell! No wonder he's called the King yeah, of Keys. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Of video keys. I imagine. Yeah. Everyone right, so who, how would he? Everyone who works in Timpsons pledging allegiance to the King of Keys. <laughs> so so what happened then? The and then uh, they so there's a whole load more stuff that they do. Yeah. Um, but the way they were caught was after, so f- I think there's a, gr- a gang of four of them. One of them, they know who's, who he is, the actual guy, the, the ringleader. And the rest of them are known by these nicknames, and they're not entirely sure who these guys are, because I don't think they got caught. Well, they just caught one of them. So, yeah, so the gang is uh, Leonardo Nottlebarton. Not, oh, God, flipping heck, I should have read this first. Nottlebarton. <laughs> Not a not a not a Bartolo. Leonardo not a Bartolo, who was obviously a professional thief. Uh-huh. His his gang was comprised Speedy, the monster, the genius, and the King of Keys. That's amazing. Why isn't this? Surely this must have been a film. Well, so the group were caught after not a 
Notabartolo and Speedy went to dispose of the evidence, planning to burn it in France. Speedy was overcome with panic at the prospect of transporting such incriminating evidence and insisted they dispose of it in a nearby forest. However, he suffered a panic attack and disposed of the evidence poorly, hurling it into the bushes rather than burning it. <laughs> oh, Speedy. I have to go so into all those lengths. There's the liability for you. Bloody is Speedy. Speedy, just doing things too quickly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then so a local guy found this stuff and discovered that there was receipts for things in that in the Whoa. Diamond District. Idiots. Speedy. His, his uh, taste for expediency was both his greatest strength and his greatest weakness. Yeah, the evidence from the rubbish was enough to allow the police to gain a lead and they were eventually able to identify Notal Bartolo from security footage from a nearby grocery store where he had purchased a sandwich and left the receipt in the rubbish. So you can go to all this, build a replica of the vault and all this stuff. And yet it's sandwich receipt. Is, is what gets you. And some papers in a bush. Ugh. Yeah. But did, did they recover all the dosh, though? Or did no. They, no. No, so the others... Mm. So uh, the monster and the king of keys are all off living the high life somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Who says crime doesn't pay does for those? Well, for those they got Leonardo, who, who had a 10-year sentence. And 10 years? Oof. But he's out now, even though he, he violated his parole and then went back to prison for longer. He was, was out in 2017, but yeah, claimed that it was a diamond merchant and hired them for insurance fraud purposes, but oh. there you go. Mm. Well, I imagine the, the the pressure of having all the illicit money will have uh, um, been too much for the rest of them and they'll be living in some kind of Jim Thompson hell of their own designing by now. <laughs> I'd have thought so, I'd have thought so. Yeah, because obviously crime doesn't pay. So yeah, Paramount Pictures optioned the rights to create a film, um, but it's since expired and they haven't done it, so, so there you go. But, you know, that was just, it stuck out as an interesting thing from 2003 that I couldn't resist talking about. Brilliant. Because it was a heist, like we've... You know, anyone who reads these crime fictions is will be yeah. very familiar with that happening. That yeah. happened in real life. The King of Keys. That's great. Okay, so, right. Whew. Let us turn our attention to Ed McBain, and I'll catch you up on what he did in 2003, other than Fat Ollie's book, which is he published um, A Little Sit Down, a short story in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, and a story called Leaving Nairobi in Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine, and obviously, still recovering from various surgeries, getting used to having his voice coming through his throat rather than through his mouth and all that sort of stuff. But he's he's still writing, and he writes the Frumius. Bandersnatch. Now, had we all read this before, is my question. Yes. Yes. Yes, me too. It was probably one of the earlier ones I got, which given the state of my copy, which is pretty... Good Nick, it's in. So I'd have read this fairly early on. And although I've been back to a few of the books, I went back to a few of the books quite quickly after reading them the hmm. first time. I didn't this one. No. <laughs> I'll be honest. And for reasons I'm sure we'll explore as we go through. <laughs> anyway. So. It's the one with the most stupid name, isn't it? <laughs> well, well, yeah, it is a stupid name for a book, although the words the Frumious Bandits snatch themselves in context from where they come from, mm. uh, well, they don't make sense. That would uh, be the right thing. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the, the whole point of them is that they don't make sense, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I guess. So they obviously come from 
the poem Jabberwocky, which was written by Lewis Carroll, turns up in Alice Through the Looking Glass in 1871. Uh, I did look to see if there was any musical versions of this, because this book hinges around a, a song mm. with the lyrics to Jabberwocky as its words, which is something I'm sure we'll spend some time talking yes. about. And the only person I could find who'd done a sort of pure version of it, like with the words, was Donovan. I can... You see, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. <laughs> so he did that in 1971 on his album, HMS Donovan. Marvellous. Have you listened to it? I listened to some of it. <laughs> you know, Donovan's fine, but... Why couldn't a Donovan been on the boat? Now, that yeah, a book about them kidnapping Donovan. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, good Lord. Love it. <laughs> As he spends his time explaining to his kidnappers how he taught the Beatles how to do fingerstyle guitar. <laughs> oh, who wants to do a summary of the book, of the plot of the book? I don't. <laughs> um, well, I mean, it's actually quite, it's quite straightforward. Yeah, there, 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 there aren't as many different things going on at once. It's a bit more linear than some, Definitely. I would say. It's not, um, it's not too... Quite a long time in this before the, the squad comes in. Isn't there a lot of background? I seem to remember it starts. Yeah, you, you you get a good sort of I don't know fifty pages or something in before you even see anyone from from the eighty seven precinct. I think. Yeah. So in a nutshell, there is a up and coming potential breakthrough artiste on a boat with her record company. Chums uh, yeah. and promoters, and then there is another boat with three mysterious people all floating around at similar times, and then the people on the mysterious people ultimately, after about what seems like about five hundred pages, <laughs> jump on the other boat and kidnap the um, the pop star just as she's completing the first big promo stunt. For the publicity of her song called The Frumious Bandersnatch to be taken from her debut album, also called The Frumious Bandersnatch, I believe. And then thus thus follows the um, investigation, which uh, quite strangely in this one more focuses on like a... An FBI squad that is formed, and Steve yeah. Carella is co-opted onto somewhat against yeah. his will. Yeah, um, so we get a bit of a bit of sort of a sense of the kind of rivalry and the interplay between the the relationship that that uh, the department has with with the the feds. Yes, that's, uh, yeah. that's a slight new one, really. Yeah. Um, but in terms of like the plot, that's the main kind of gist of it really the main yes. subplot is kind of revolves around uh fat ollie i suppose and his uh-huh. uh mm-hmm. courting of um yeah patricia uh, gomez pa- uh, patricia gomez so i would say out of all the bits of the book i like i like the fat ollie bits yeah that would have been a, a tremendous little uh, novella. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We could have done without something. So there's quite a lot of good dialogue in those and they're out dancing and eating and drinking and yeah. whatnot um but yeah, the main the main crime, as it were, yeah, there's just the one really in this book, isn't there? I think. Yeah. So this is our first kidnapping, um, pure kidnapping, I suppose. Mm. If that's not quite the right word, but I know what I mean. Yeah. Since King's Ransom, mm. which is obviously a book published in 1959, but in the bizarre time that the 87th precinct exists in, 
still remains the only other kidnapping case that Corella has ever dealt with in his entire time on the force. Yeah. So he's now 40 years old or something by this point, isn't he? But Yeah. And th- th- there's definitely some bit with the expanding time which doesn't really make sense in this, in terms of this happening in the real world, where... Because he is 40 years old, as we've established, I think, but then... It's he's flashing back to the war that he was in, but we're no longer sure which war it was, and I'm not sure it actually can we, the time yeah, scale he's what, referring to actually can can make sense with any war that happened in the real world anymore. Yeah, with, and with cotton whores as well. Mm-hmm. Think about his navy career, Guatemala or somewhere with like the Marines or something, Maybe, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah so. it gets a bit confusing. But uh, I mean, that's a, that's a minor so point, isn't like, it? We, always just like mystery to me in this, just on on that topic why he didn't surely at his age now he had the luxury McBain to start aging them a little bit more knowing that he was going to be writing them forever because he could have had a lot of the characters like almost getting towards retire you know I suppose you they probably retire at 50 or 55 in the I'd have thought so you know so he could have had them late 40s couldn't he yeah Um, but he keeps them compressed in that 35 to 40 for Mm -hmm. 45 years about, doesn't he? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Um, And I think it's only a couple of books ago where he definitively stated that Mm. Corella had turned 40. Yeah. So So you kind of meant to think that the preceding canon was all in his early 30s to that point, I suppose, weren't you? And it's sort of impossible that you would have had that sort of career in in that supposed time span. But nevertheless, we... Anyway, Mr. We're, I digress. We're, we're, here. we're here now. And we're all... Yeah, there's also a strange thing in that the problem with making your characters in their 30s and 40s in the 21st century as well is that McBain, writing as an older man, perhaps doesn't understand people in the late 30s and 40s relationship to popular culture. <laughs> And is treating it so that he's got all these characters saying, I've never heard of her, which is fine because this is a new pop style. Style? It's a new <laughs> pop style that he's got coming around there. A new pop star. Yep. So they wouldn't have heard of her. Yeah. But they're sort of treating them like they wouldn't have heard of any pop stars except the super mega global ones. Yeah. They'd have all been off uh, just listening to Mel Torme or something. Uh, yeah. <laughs> over their uh, afternoon cocktails and wouldn't be aware of all this beat music that the kids are listening to. That's essentially the implication, <laughs> isn't it, really? Um, they all listen to what McBain would be listening to as a man in his 70s rather than as people in the 21st century who were the sort of age of listening for popular stuff is a bit broader really mm. it's not all just it wasn't just kids listening to j-lo and and all this lot yeah so we like, get a lot of names in this yeah Ooh, definitely like yeah. people because yeah detectives who are sort of 40 in 2003 you know would have been they would have been listening to like probably rock music when they when they were young wouldn't they it's not like they they, they wouldn't have grown up listening to bing crosby or something it was yeah, yeah. So anyway, I think that yeah, I think you can probably detect from well, certainly my um, approach to this is I'm a bit cynical about this book, <laughs> and I think with good right, especially as someone who's a musician and likes music and has written songs and things like that. Because before we get into anything else, let's discuss this. So the the big opening chapter of these, like Steve says, feels like five hundred pages. A lot of it is given over to the performance of this song, The Frumious 
Bandersnatch. Now, I can't. Morgan, perhaps you can try and... What sort of style of music is, is this supposed to be? I, I, I don't, the way he describes it, it, bits of it sound kind of almost avant-garde, really. It keeps yeah. going back to this, this sort of droning B-flat synthesizer, but I'm guessing it's meant to be sort of some kind of, like... Like a... Because he must be vaguely basing this singer on, say, like a Christina Aguilera mm. type of... He so mentions I'd, J-Lo and Christina yeah, Aguilera. Yeah, I'd guess sort of like a pop R&B, and then there's a, there's a, a, a hip-hop section, isn't there, I think? So I'm guessing something along those kind of lines. But why on earth you would, if you were going to have a performer in that vein, you would have them doing a song that literally uses the words of the of um, Jabberwocky? Not even just vaguely based on the concept of it. It's just the words from yeah. from the poem. It's using the words from the poem to, to try and make some serious point about sexual violence. And it's like, but the, it's not there. No. It's such a patently ridiculous idea. And he's, he's obviously really in love with it. So he absolutely hammers it home. And it's, the more he hammers it home, the more terrible the idea is. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, reading it again, I think the whole problem is like trying to work out what song is it. I don't think McBain's got a clue. He, he's literally no. describing something that he doesn't. He just does not know what he's on about, no, and not. therefore it just fails to hold together. The whole idea of the song and the performance that he describes around it, the entire thing hmm. just utterly lacks credibility, and it yeah. really, really ruins that whole thing because if you if you're totally disbelieving that main focal point from the start it kind of spoils everything that comes after but he could have made his life a bit easier for himself and just had a straight up pop song yeah they didn't need to describe next, it in the detail that he does next britney spears kind of yeah. straightforward there's, there's, yeah there's no he's... need for any there's no need for lewis carroll to be in there at all and it would have made a lot more sense yeah. if it wasn't <laughs> he could he could to have got across the points he I feel like he thinks he wants to make, which is sexual violence um, and also representation of black people in the popular mm. in music industry and things like yeah. that. He would have been better just making up a song. Yeah. Mm. And I, you know, I always cringe when he's done it before with like Calypso and stuff like that. <laughs> but Could have written his own, his well, own lyrics again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're he, not he could good. Have made the point better. It, yeah, if it, it, you know, even his worst of his own lyrics that he's made up before were better than. Than this, and I think. Sh- you know, crowbar Lewis Carroll into the career of Christina Aguilera. Well, I don't know. I'm thinking off the top of my head here. Unless one of his points was just to make make it purposely ridiculous as a bit of a uh, well, you know, if that kind was, of. If that was the point, he succeeded. Yeah, <laughs> but he doesn't. He certainly doesn't come across like that, no. does he? But it feels a little bit like old man yells at cloud. Mm. Yeah. So sort of like I don't understand this music now. So what's the most ludicrous thing I can think of? Oh, a nonsense like, poem from yeah. the 1870s. Yeah. It's a lot of might as well be that. Yeah, pop pop music's all nonsense anyway, so why don't we pick something that's literally nonsense? And, and uh, There's a bit where he's like critiquing the uh, uh, the stickability of NSYNC, isn't he? And the uh, longevity of some other artist. And you're just like, ooh, you know, yeah. it's just... Every now and then he does. It, there's an entry, isn't he, where he deals with something and you just think... You know, it's quite commendable, I suppose, having topics that are out of your comfort zone and trying to, you know, kind of fit them into your real world. You know, pop music is real, therefore I'll I'll fit it into the 87th Precinct, even though I clearly know nothing about it. Yeah. 
that comes across, but you just wish he kind of just not bothered really. Yeah, and, and we know that he does. He had a, a researcher working with him at the time as well, so it's a bit like he's sort of said to someone, "Go off and find yeah. out a, a bunch of names, a bunch and of information." It, re- it reads like that as well. Yeah. It, it just, does. Like going on about like, the, 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 this part of the song was straight hip hop, harsh and relentless, uh, <laughs> um, and, and like, but then. The, the harsh and relentless hip hop bit is enough, as enoughish thought he stood the Jabberwock with eyes aflame came whiffling through the Tulji wood and burbled as it came you can imagine that <laughs> it's just ghost face killer rapping uh, that it's just, you know it's not happening I mean no, I could so. I'm not I can, having it <laughs> I could imagine something like Della Soul taking like Lewis Carroll nonsense and doing something funny with yeah, it yeah yeah but not this it's it's it's, it's because it's meant to like the way the performance is presented. It's meant to be deadly serious, isn't it? It's like, ah. Oh. Right. Well, here's the thing. I'm Morgan. I'm moving around the room now. Everybody, <laughs> take this guitar and just just hold that. Okay. Right. You, so you're going to perform this song. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no. Harsh, no. Harsh, so, harsh and relentless. I just want to illustrate something musical here. So it describes the first stanza as being about this B flat chord or note or something. Like relentless B flat, so it just gives a B flat, okay, and it's just like dun dun dun, something like that on a synth, isn't it? Right, but then the next bit he says there's four bars in G. Ooh, but it moves, <laughs> but with offbeat E minor power chords. <laughs> <laughs> and then back to B flat. Yeah, Ooh. only four bars. Oh. oh. Mm. He's making it up as he goes along. <laughs> it just doesn't work, does it? It, it? it does not sound like a very good idea. No, it's that. So, but that's he spends a lot of time uh, try, describing just bits and pieces like that, and none of them add up. If you don't know music, perhaps you're not going to know that, but. It's very strange to read yeah, that. Yeah, it's odd. Like, because I know having read Streets of Gold, the, the bits about the music in that seem a lot more credible. Yes. I think maybe just when he's writing about something that he actually likes and cares about, mm. it just comes across a lot more naturally. Whereas he obviously he doesn't know or care about this kind of music, and you just wonder yeah. why he's trying to engage with it. Yeah, it's silly as well. Feel free to put the guitar down now. I might just hold it. For <laughs> it's quite comforting. Well, it's like having Donovan staring at me now, if you hold that all the way through. <laughs> I'll pop it down. Just pop it onto the... Yeah, there you go. Right. Uh, and along with describing a lot of the uh, song, there's a lot of descriptive of the mechanics of the music industry as well, isn't there? As he sees it. As a researcher might tell yeah. you about, which he... So, I mean, there is a, there's a story to tell in that world at that time, hmm. definitely, because you do have these huge breakout artists, a lot of whom were uh, Latina and things like that, young women as well. And so representation of women in the pop music industry in the early 2000s is a, a topic worthy of study and, hmm. and di- discussion. And there's, there's certainly tales to be told there. I mean, oh, we're yeah. still dealing with the outfall of what happened with Britney Spears. You know, this year at the yeah. moment, things are happening with her career. But that's started as a result of how she was portrayed and controlled and things like that in in the early part of her career. So, yeah, but I don't think McBain is the man to do it. No, maybe and not. the problem is also then he's just designed in his head this music video, which 
is him taking us down this this route about this concept of rape. And so we have to deal a lot now with this old crime writer's view of rape and that comes into this book later in, in a really, really, really horrible way, than, which makes it even worse, <laughs> you know, than this silliness of, of what is designed as this, uh. this thing. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's... Um, Anyway, let me point out some points from the book other than this. So I like the fact that when Steve Carella and Cotton Hawes have to go and to the scene of the crime, which is a boat, we discover that Steve Carella can't stand boats and gets seasick really <laughs> e- easily, but Cotton Hawes is like... Because <laughs> <laughs> he was in the Navy. And he's in his element. Um, Cotton Hawes meets uh, the TV presenter, news presenter Honey Blair in this. Who's been in two or three books yes. now? So, but I don't remember there being a point where Cotton Hawes stopped seeing Annie Rawls. It must have happened off camera. Off we, camera. we can only assume. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's also a, a definite possibility. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so there's a little bit of Cotton Hawes in here, but not masses of this. Yeah, like I mentioned, you know, Carella sort of explains to these other guys how many you know they're asking how many kidnappings have you dealt with in your career or this this month (laughs) this year your entire career and it's like one and that's king's ransom which is a much better kidnapping book than this (laughs) one this was this you know there's no modern kurosaru who's thinking oh the frumiest bandersnatch i can make that into something as good as as high and low could Hmm. be happening right as we speak you never know well that would be interesting (laughs) yeah we find out weird little details like that uh, Maya Maya's wife's birthday is the 3rd of May. You know, it's a little bit of odd stuff like that that I like. Yeah. In passing, um, we also know that Corella's still nervous about the fact that he's got to give away both his mother and his sister <laughs> at a forthcoming wedding. Yeah. <clears throat> um, which I assume takes place in the next book, which I have not read. I have not either. Ooh. I have, but I can't remember it. <laughs> yeah. uh, we have the Reverend Gabriel Foster involved again. He's been in the mm-hmm. last handful of books, hasn't he? Yeah, he does crop up. Yep. Uh, some good sort of reflection by Carella on his own career. Right? We, I think we get the first ever glimpse of him thinking about when he started in the job as a policeman, mm. where he has the experience of, of sort of the mistrust of the public straight away from from day one in, on uniform on the beat and things like that because he meets is it Detective Corcoran who's oh, now working oh, with, yeah. the, with the Phoebes the FBI yeah. Yeah. yeah who's no longer Corky no uh, you can call me Lieutenant Corcoran oh, yeah what a rotter yeah I, I think the, aside from the um, the Ollie bits like the the best bits of this book are where he's on better territory with the mechanics of the the kidnapping and the paying of the ransom, isn't it? And yeah. They, they go to a, um, what do they call it? This The Wasteland, which I'm assuming is like the South Bronx that they refer to. Yeah, you know, the equivalent past- of like total abandoned part yeah. of the city. And th- those passages read really well and you're quite atmospheric yeah. driving around the deserted streets. The, 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 and the, that's the frustrating thing. There's actually quite a lot of really, really enjoyable stuff in yeah, this book. That it's just reads this big well, howling that. clangor of a thing in the centre of it that mm. kind of um, you can't quite escape. I, um, 
Yeah, because the, the uh, part of the conditions of eventually when they go and have to pay the money, the ransom, they insist that an armed detective goes with yeah. uh, the chap who's going to pay the ransom. And they, they can't really understand why until they head there. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. There is definitely there's moments, and it it, it does recall actually some of King's Ransom, like in the scene in King's Ransom where there's a have you got a phone in your car? Which in King's yeah. Ransom was like a novelty because it's 1959. Yeah. Here now it's sort of more standard because everyone's got a mobile yeah. or yeah. cell phone. Um, but it's it's got some of that energy and interest to it mm. in those sequences. Mm, definitely, yeah. Uh, especially when. I, well, the core bit where Corella gets called into the FBI sort of gang. The squad. Yeah, but also feels like he's just there as a token and, and walks out of it as well. But yeah, he sort of gets muscled out and then the FBI guy takes over for the second run on the uh, on the drop-off of money before everything goes haywire. Mm. You know, that's interesting to see Corella interacting in those different scenarios with different people. And to see him sidelined. Mm. So to say, well, the main story, you know, the main star of the book, Steve Carella, is given the job of going and dealing and liaising with the FBI. But then you actually, what the character's doing is sitting there feeling useless. Mm. So, you know, McBain can do that sort of thing well. We still enjoy reading that yeah. where, where our hero is doing naff all because he, yeah. he's sort of been hamstrung by the situation he's in mm. and lots of sections about people attempting to triangulate mobile phone signals yeah the, the very high-tech approach that the fbi have got which doesn't actually really get them anywhere at all no indeed so then we have a very intensive passage of like the police procedural stuff when Corella's like oh well, let's try and beat them to the chase then yeah and they just fall back on like proper traditional uh yeah uh, yeah footwork don't they and um yeah they all meet for the big finale, as it were. Yeah. Um, a bit of a background as well of, Car- of Corella remembering how, when he was a, a young man, he used to phone up girls and quote poetry to them down the phone. <laughs> like T.S. Eliot stuff. Yeah. So, I'll talk about Wasteland. He, apparently he quotes stuff from The Wasteland to people down the phone. Now, I've never read The Wasteland. Have you read it more? Uh, yeah, definitely read it for me uh, from a degree many years ago. Would you suggest it as a good source of romantic poetry? No, not really, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't think it was that sort of thing. Yeah, a bit of ultra-bleak, epic modernism to... Yeah. Hmm. Not, not, Getting not, the girls on board. Yeah. Yeah. But, that, yeah, there's a very interesting uh, author self-reference point in this on in, uh, page 171, which is great. So this is the this is my favourite funny bit, other than sort of the banter between... Well, Ollie's stuff's not funny necessarily, it's just interesting. But page 171, you've got two characters we've never met before. There's two special agents going to, to talk to someone. And it's like, it's talking about how... Huh, where is it? Let me find it. Special Agent Forbes was saying he'd been watching this writer on C-SPAN the other <laughs> night, giving a book talk in a bookstore in Seattle someplace. And the writer was telling the audience that he once got a letter from some lady who said she wasn't going to read his books anymore because there were too many people in them. <laughs> and so and this, is, this is proper McBain, this, isn't it? So not only has he put the words into some of his characters' mouths, in order to make the point even more, he's, he's introduced two characters who we've never met before <laughs> and given them this discussion about there being too many characters in a book. Hmm. Yeah. It's like 
Besides, they aren't people, Detective First Grade Lonigan said. They're characters. Who was this writer, anyway? Detective Second Grade <laughs> Feingold asked. Some mystery writer, Forbes said. So we've got a whole bunch of other people. So that was my favourite bit, yeah, no, I think, great. in terms of standout author. Because, yeah, clearly the author is sewn through this inattitude and things he wants to discuss, but I prefer it when he's just being rude about <laughs> about people who tell him off. Yeah. Really. The problem with this, really, though, is that we've got the awful music stuff, but we also have the kidnapping descending into chaos. Mm-hmm. Talking about liabilities. From the moment the kidnappee accidentally gets a glimpse of one of the kidnappers, you know, basically, she's done for, really. It's not mentioned for pages and pages and pages and pages and pages, but then you've just got the sense in the background that's, you know, but she saw me, you know, but she mm-hmm. saw me. Then there's a mix-up and, 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 or a double cross in there, and it all just leads to... Well, it leads ultimately up to a really, really violent rape scene. Just rewinding there just a little bit to the, du- the double cross as well, which we'll go into detail, but I know I was rereading it, but that that's, came across as really bloody obvious as well. Yes, it did. <laughs> yeah. And normally with his, you know, kind of surprises or plot twists or whatever they might be, normally... Ah, that, you know, a bit of a, oh, my Lord. But in this, it was just like, oh, I thought I was obvious. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. So it just didn't really pack no. anything, that no, revelation, it, as it were. No, sadly not. Yeah, but we also have to suffer through this 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 really violent rape scene, which, you know, he's putting all this commentary on, on rape as it's depicted in this video to the point where it's got protests happening outside the record company and it's got two scenes set in different TV discussion programmes about it, both of which just don't make any sense because, again, everyone would just... why I don't know, maybe this is me. I, I'm saying this from the position of a 43-year-old white British man in, in the year... What year is it? 2022. Um, to check. I got it wrong last time we did one of these as well. To say that people wouldn't be discussing the implications of... But they don't seem to be discussing the video in terms of its its visual content. They seem to mm. be discussing the lyrics as mm. being about about a call to sexual violence. But the lyrics are Lewis Carroll's nonsense poetry from 1871. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. But, but the fact that it's then coupled with a scene where he writes in a very violent rape and beating, mm. and it, it is, it's... It just makes for a very unpleasant experience. Yeah, it, it, it felt like they didn't need because he, he lets you know, get to know the the singer a little bit as well, and gets a, lets the uh, be a little bit resourceful in the way that she kind of works the blindfold off, and you get a bit of a thought process, and you think, oh, maybe she's actually going to like find some way to outsmart these, because you you can sense the violence building up all the way through with yeah. with. That yeah, guy yeah. can't. Yeah. He's, he's introduced him as the liability we were on yeah, about. Yeah, absolutely. He's in the he's clear like, as day. Eh, eh, this guy's going to screw something up at some point. And I, do you know, I think it would have been much more satisfying if she had actually somehow managed to outsmart them rather than just, oh, here's some incredibly bleak, violent, sickening thing. Yeah, because... Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't remember how it panned out, really. And I was thinking, oh, you, you know, she's going to, 
you know, that's going to be the big end is that actually she's portrayed as a bit of a a diva or somebody and like the main record guy's always calling her a child, isn't he? Mm. And, uh, and yeah. actually she's going to outsmart these fairly clever criminals, but nah. Yeah, it's just like, oh, we'll just, just start to build up this character. Oh, and then let's just... Yeah. yeah. And it doesn't even, you know, sometimes you can do that and the, the shock effect works. This time I think it was just, a, it felt like a... It just didn't work for me. No, no, me either. No, no. Right, so we better, well, I'm going to start summarising this already, really. Uh, before I do, um, I won't read that out, that's a review. In uh, January 2003, there was uh, an interview with Ed McBain with someone called Anthony Raynone about Ollie Weeks. <laughs> or, or Ollie Weeks was one of the people who came up in this interview and he says, so the question to McBain was, Ollie Weeks is so clearly prejudiced, over-the-top prejudiced, he is dangerous, yet he's interested in Patricia Gomez, a Hispanic woman. There is a complexity to him that you don't expect. Is there hope for old Ollie <laughs> after all? And McBain's reply here is there's hope for everybody, they just have to learn. Mm. In the book I've just finished, it's called The Frumious Bandersnatch, Ollie is actively dating Patricia Gomez and learning a thing or two. Maybe the reader will learn a thing or two at the same time. I'm not entirely sure what he expects <laughs> us to learn in that situation. <laughs> I think he's right there, you know, nobody should be viewed as beyond Well, hope yeah, I know, uh, yeah, I'd like yeah. to, like to he, hope. But he does say, I really don't know how this string will play out, but it's worth a shot. Hmm. So that shows how far ahead he's planning, as in not at all, I don't think. So, you know, and he didn't know he only had two more books uh. left to write in this series. He didn't know that when he was writing the last one, I imagine. He'd be a bit mean if he was going to be mean to him in the same way he's mean to uh, Berkling all the time, wouldn't he? Yeah. Hmm. So, so far in the new book, Ollie's giving it an honest shot, but of course he's a bigot, so we'll have to see what happens. Okay, so I excited to see what happens in Hark, uh, presuming that there's stuff in there about it. One would assume so, yeah. Learning a new song, though, isn't he? Yeah, oh, yeah, he does. He, yeah, Ollie gets to learn a new song here as well. The man who mastered night and day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> once he got past those those tricky first three notes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Presumably flying fingers now, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, so anyway. Uh, oh, oh, dear me. Right, who's going to go first on summing up and scoring? I think I'm going to have to give it to you, Steve. Can I uh, have the Kenneth uh, uh, yeah, yeah, sorry. printout, please? Yeah, well, we've given it an ongoing review, haven't we? So I won't kind of... Yeah, don't feel the need uh, to linger. <laughs> but, but linger, but yeah, it just... It just... It doesn't really hold up. And, and, and also, not that you always really have to give a shit about the characters, but he doesn't really help you... Get engaged with them at all? No. E- either really does does he? I don't know. He just as I say, like the best passages were the the caper element of it, really. But the entire premise is ridiculous, and therefore I am going to go. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, 49, 50, I don't know. You choose. 48. Right, I'm putting 48 down. I don't know. It's not without its moments, you know. And uh, and there's a lot of the passages with Ollie and the FBI bits and the heist and... But, 
Yeah, that probably accounts for 48% of the pages, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I'll go with that. Well, Morgan, what do you think then? Yeah, as I say, it's frustrating because the, the bits I, I like, I really do like. I think the, the Ollie and Patricia stuff is, is really charming and I, I'm loving seeing his character uh, develop. Um, the, the rest, the the, uh, the whole Premier's Bandersnatch actual bit is absolute bobbins. Uh, I'm going I'm to be slightly more generous. I'm going to just tip over the halfway point and go for 51 police shields. I was just thinking Dutch ghosts are more credible than... Uh, well, ah, uh, yeah. The, and and that's, yeah, you, when you think back to the, like, the weaker ones and you think... You know, the stupid song in this and Dutch Ghosts, I think don't you? For me, this is about, I can't remember what I've. <laughs> with the, the Deaf Man one with the, the, the concert in the park, I think this is about on a par with that. And uh, yeah, I've forgotten what that one's called already. Yeah. Didn't like it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I've got to say, I, I revisited this having not read it for a, a, a long, long time, like I said. And yes. I concur. I love the bits with Ollie and Patricia. I like a little bit of backstory of some of his characters. I like the Corella, you know, those Corella bits and pieces. But I found it really... I thought it was just off. It was just mm-hmm. off, really off. So it's not getting more than 40 for me. Whoa. So you see, you can, definitely my lowest score, I, I think. I, I know we score them from our perspective. But you, can score, you could score these as score it for somebody who's new to the series. And you can also score it for somebody who's read the series 20 times yeah. with this one you can't help but feel you would score it poorly on both counts yeah, yeah. because yeah. it doesn't really add too much as to the whole 87th no. precinct world and in terms of one to recommend to somebody who never if read this any is the of the first them, one you read really, you wouldn't it, read a second one no, would you no you wouldn't no so it it, it scores poorly from both uh, you know both counts yeah well, it gets a, oh, I'm not going to say grand. It gets a Kenneth total of 46.333 recurring, therefore 46 police shields, and it's lucky to get that. <laughs> but before we finish off, I'll do a couple of the contemporary reviews and see whether people at the time, in those far-off days of 2003 slash 2004, um, agreed with us. So, actually, on edmcbain.com, there was a full review from January 2004 from USA Today. Headline being, Timeless McBain returns more cynical than ever. 87th Precinct has star turn in the Frumius Bandersnatch. And then it's quite a big, long, uh, big, long review, including one paragraph entirely in brackets. Says, caveat for new readers, McBain spares no one, no group, no gender, no occupation. For example, Jonah, the tall, gorgeous black dancer who plays the attacker in the video, is gay and McBain does not hold back on describing his lisp. But then the author regularly employs an acid-dipped pen on everyone, from red-faced Irish-American FBI agents to lazy cops to dim girlfriends. Now, his his acid-dipped pen is is good in some places. Mm. I just think in this one, it's just, it is, it's just grumpy. Mm. Like... He's he's picking at difference rather than talking about difference uh, yeah. in, in in this. So yeah. Anyway, don't let the fancy title put you off. It concludes. This is McBain as savagely satisfying as a very rare filet mignon. Nah. 
Well, I mean, he was hardly likely to publish a, uh, <laughs> a bad review on his own on his own site. That's true. Big review in the Washington Post. Obviously, I've got to pick out a couple of points from, and it is a long review as well, mm. this one. A writer as obsessively productive as McBain is bound to have ups and downs. I certainly haven't read all of the Hunter McBain novels, but I thought The Last Dance from 2000 was absolutely first rate. Then I read The Moment She Was Gone, and I wondered why he let it be published. I quite like The Moment She Was Gone. That's a standalone Evan Hunter one. Mm. Uh, I therefore picked up the Frumius Bandersnatch with trepidation, wondering if a downward cycle had begun. Not to worry. This is not McBain at his grim, gritty best, but McBain is in an antic mood, having fun with a crime caper that keeps us smiling until the very end. Um. <laughs> what? Ooh. Yeah. It's, it's all fun and games. Yeah. Smiles and laughter. You know, and this guy reviewing this is like, yeah... Goes on, da 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 da. Soon the kidnappers speed away with Tamar, the singer, as their prisoner. Steve Carella and other 87th precinct detectives are called in, and publicity hungry FBI agents also lay claim to the case. Speaking too fast. <laughs> Plot wise, the rest of the novel is given over to answering certain basic questions. Will the cops recover Tamar alive? Will the 87th precinct or the FBI find her first? Will one of the kidnappers rape the captive singer? And it's like, that just drops that in like, oh, I wonder if she'll be raped. Jesus. <laughs> Strange review. Yeah. Will, will, yeah. will she end up with her brains blown out? Yeah. yeah. Charming. Yeah. But a review from The Times from August 2004, which is when I assume the paperback came out in the UK. No, no, it's the hardback one because it's 12 99 uh, McBain is usually consistency defined, but if you pump out police procedurals at the rate he does... It's, he's probably finished another one in the time it's taken me to write this. Then the odd bum note is perhaps not at all that surprising. The kidnapping of a pop diva set to scale the charts with a song setting of the Lewis Carroll poem gives McBain plenty of ammo for his wordplay, but the dialogue lacks its customary snap. Hmm. And then that's it for the review for that one from the Times. So, And I've, in the front cover of the paperback edition, there's a couple more bits of an engrossing plot. It's, yeah. A clever deconstruction of today's shallow pop world. It's all old man yells at cloud stuff. So, uh, so there we go. So anyway, <laughs> we will. At least this is the fifty-third one, and we've not uh, started uh, started on this. Yeah, uh, well, I will... tune in for the next four. <laughs> we can promise. Yeah, what I will say is uh, thank you to everyone who I mentioned on Twitter, people to <laughs> add their thoughts about Premius Bandersnatch. And of the comments I received, they were all pretty much of an opinion similar to ours. I, I, I saw a few of them, yeah. I think. Essentially, oh, right, I'm okay. not fussed about rereading this. This yeah. is really rather embarrassing and a bit, yeah, have your cake and eat it type McBain stuff. Uh. So, yeah, thank you for everyone who's commented. And I just, yeah. <laughs> well, it'd be boring if they were all good, wouldn't it? Yeah, well. But in recent years, you know, looking at the uh, our scores, they are... He does get a little bit more erratic, doesn't he? That yeah. he, he's good, you know, his but high the, points are yeah, high. Yeah, there's still, still plenty of high points. Yeah, um, he's had a few good moments. You know, you can tell from that that, you know, there's not really any trajectory. He's just, yeah, a little bit more inconsistent, perhaps. Yeah, so, well, it's... For artists. Definitely. <laughs> well, like I say, we move on then to book number 54 of 55 books to the novel Hark. <laughs> from 2004 
so later in the year from where this one has been published so we'll be able to do all of 2004 catch-up stuff in the next one you see that's the system i'm using <laughs> all right okay. got you yeah there we are i see i'm excited about that i haven't read it so i do like that and yeah so until we return for that and bonus episode keep your eyes open for that as usual um i'm gonna say goodbye as is steve-o goodbye and morgan fairly well 